0: Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. Welcome to the Hoban Minute. Today, Bob and I are talking with California cannabis power hitter, Graham Farrar, president of the Glasshouse Group. Graham, thanks for taking some time to be with us here today.
1: Hey, thanks a lot for having me, guys. Happy to be here.
0: Well, we've been awaiting this conversation and we've been eager to talk to you because we know you have a lot going on and you've been a prolific figure out in the California cannabis space. And before we talk about all of the things that you have your hands in with the (laughs) growth of the California cannabis industry, give us a little bit of your background in the tech space. Since you have such a varied and storied history, what do our listeners need to know about you to kind of understand the perspective and the acumen that you bring to the cannabis space?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, you're probably giving me more credit than I deserve there, but... Um, if I was going to put it up in in a nutshell, I'd say I'm a tech guy by experience, but a cannabis lover by passion. I've got a lot of experience doing things that people have no experience doing. Um, that's probably the common thread that unites what I've done on, on the business side. And by that, I mean I started my career at a company called Software.com. This was back in 1995, which probably you know before a lot of people even remember the internet. But we were built like, we were building a company uh, that was Basically a digital post office, right? So we ran the, made the software that ran email before most people realized they were going to have an email address. So this is back when, if you weren't in the government or you weren't in a university, email was a new thing. But as that transition happened, you know, you got your first ISP account. You're dialing up with your modem and your email set somewhere before you could download it. We made that software that did it. So we took that company public in 99. It was the right time to be going public you know, $200 a share. Don Listland, who was the number two at Cisco, came over to be our CEO. It was a really great time, a lot of fun. And then from there, I took a break and I bought a sailboat and I sailed for two years from Santa Barbara, which is my hometown, down to New Zealand, came back. I left with my girlfriend and came back to get married. And I called up John McFarland, who's the CEO of software.com and said, Hey, I need help. Uh, Otherwise I'm going to get stuck picking out centerpieces for for wedding arrangements. What are you doing? And he said, me and you know, four other guys have an idea for this thing that would eventually become Sonos. So, again, back in the beginning, uh, back before people had digital music, we sat down and started coming up with how to do you know, that iPod for the home, so to speak. So, I was lucky enough to be one of the original guys over at Sonos. That went public a couple years ago, 15 years later. Uh, still, I think, the best product in the category. And all through that time, though. I was a cannabis lover, right? And that meant uh, growing it in my closet. That meant, you know, playing around in garages. It just meant I thought the world was better with cannabis in it. I enjoyed consuming it. I thought the technology approach and the plants and all that was really fun. So I started a company making apps for kids. Again, right when apps came out and started a company that made uh, fertilizer nutrients and growing systems for growers. And through that, realized that the best people in cannabis actually didn't really know what they were doing either. And a lot of the experience that I gleaned over the last 25 years as a a hobbyist was actually pretty relevant and at the forefront of things. So put that together with a view on systems and technology and the love of cannabis and being in the right climate of Santa Barbara, you know, the serendipity is kind of almost so good. It's hard to believe it's real, but, you know, it all came together to launch into what would become Glasshouse Farms.
2: Well, and it's always good to to sort of uh, succeed at a very high level in in your hometown or at least with roots there. But I want to talk about some of the parallels between your tech experience and the cannabis uh, experience from a commercial perspective. But before I get there, Santa Barbara to New Zealand, holy smokes! Can you, regal- <laughs> can, you can you tell us uh, w- w- tell us a tumultuous tale, if you will? Tell us something that would that would uh, that would be interesting. That you know something horrible that happened or something that, was, that, 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 that made, you, made you grit your teeth really hard and, and, and uh, pray to whomever.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, horrible on a boat in the middle of the Pacific is, is a kind of a different scale of horrible. So luckily um, nothing horrible happened. Uh, there were certainly a few harrowing tales out there. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is we, it's about seven days' sail from Fiji to New Zealand. Um, and typically it's, that's a longer period of time than you can get an accurate weather forecast for. So you watch the weather and you set out and you know kind of what's going to happen the next three days. And then the next four, you get what you get. And what we got was about 45 knot winds, 25 foot seas. It was all right on the nose. We were right into it, basically launching the boat wave after wave, rocking back and forth. There was one place on the entire boat that you could lay down to sleep that you wouldn't get you know tossed in the air. So we were four of us on the boat at that time for the crossing. This is a 46 foot sailboat for context. So we are all basically time sharing this one spot on the boat to try and do sleep to sleep, and you're sailing 24 hours a day. so you're doing you know four hour watches during the day and two hour watches at night. and it's like having a baby, you're never fully rested. And my, uh, my girlfriend now wife who was with us, had prepared you know the meals in advance. The boat was rocking so hard that we were unable that we couldn't cook any of them. So here we are, seven days in, 24 hours a day leaping off of waves, hoping the mast didn't break, fighting for a single spot to sleep, and all basically eating Triscuits and cheese because the boat was moving around uh, too much to cook. And then we pulled into uh, North Harbor there and the North Island. And in a period of about 15 minutes, went from the roughest thing you could imagine to dead, placid, flat, calm, pulled into the harbor. And half hour later, we had a beer in our hand and forgot it all happened and just
2: enjoyed New Zealand. <laughs> well, I look forward to, to hearing more, more of those tales over, over a beer someday soon. But let's talk a little bit about and, and transition into your, your tech experience and how that prepares you for you know entry into the commercial cannabis space. Because the tech industry has been known in many ways to have sort of these quick flashes in the pan, if you will. Something that goes out and makes a big splash, maybe creates a, a liquidity event for its founders, but then Things tend to taper off oftentimes, although the good companies, Sonos being one of them, of course, they're around to stay and they've made their imprint. The cannabis industry is no different. So many folks in the cannabis industry went out, raised a bunch of money, went public so that they could create that liquidity event or so forth and so on. And then there's not much to say after that. How did working in the tech space prepare you to build what you've built thus far, and and I know it's a team effort, but what you lead thus far in the cannabis space so that it is built to last?
1: So, you know, I think one of the primary things that I learned in tech, and uh, I would credit John McFarland, who's the CEO of both software.com and Sonos for the lesson was, if you focus on the long term, and you build a good business, everything is an option, right? And um, he had amazingly. He's kind of a I don't know what what is you know. It kind of reminds me of a, I think the Chinese, frankly, are good at this. Right? They're not thinking about tomorrow. They're thinking about you know generations ahead and what is what does the long term look like. And and John uh, thinks the same way, right? And especially in internet days, we all wanted um, liquidity, and we all saw what was going on, and we all saw you know Pets. dot com and you know et cetera, et cetera that were you know exploding, right? Well, well, we had. Uh, a business that actually was making money that was truly generating revenue. And here we were like, you know, no one had heard about it. And that was because John had always focused on build a solid business and everything will be an option, right? You don't build it to go public. You don't build it to be a flash in the pan. As you said, you build a solid foundation and then you can do whatever makes the most sense and whatever creates the most value for shareholders and employees, et cetera. And I, I think the same thing applies to cannabis, right? There's a lot of flash. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there. And, uh, you know, with Glasshouse, it's a new name for a lot of people because we've just, you know, we started heads down being a wholesale supplier and just running a farm when people thought farms weren't flashy and trying to get as, you know, best quality, consistency, and efficiency that we could and then converted that into a brand. And when people started to see it, they're really only California because that we're a California-focused company. And then it's just kind of now as we're moving towards, uh, you know, public markets and the broader uh, you know, broader investment base out there outside of California and starting to think about interstate commerce, that the name's kind of getting out and people think it's new, but then they look and they realize, oh, these guys have been doing this for over half a decade and they've got positive EBITDA and they've got real revenue and it grows over time and they've expanded and, you know, converted multiple farms and they've grown and, you know, tripled in size three times. And, and, then, and then it just always reminded me that make a solid business, do the best you can, be honest. You know, admit when you make a mistake, say, tell people how you're going to fix it, then go do what you said. And I think that works everywhere, including cannabis, where it maybe it's more rare than other industries.
2: Well, I think what maybe our listeners don't always understand is that one of the reasons that cannabis companies tend to try to go public or avail themselves of public markets in the early stages versus, as you described, building a solid business that has a good foundation and can participate in an industry for for the foreseeable future is because there's not a lot of access to capital in the cannabis space from traditional sources, from institutional sources. So the way that many cannabis companies have tried to avail themselves of capital for scaling and and otherwise is to go to the public markets. Can you comment on that too in that distinction? Because it's counterintuitive to so many people that have been involved in companies that have gone public in other sectors.
1: So, I mean, this is the challenge and the opportunity I think for cannabis, right? The capital dislocation, as far as I know, it's really hard to find other places where you see this kind of, Of capital dislocation again, and to compare it to tech, right? Like you build something and you get funding to build it to see if your idea works, and people are willing to do that, right? Like you know, if you think about some of the early dot com things, right? Like they put money. You know, you can find examples of a billion dollars raised on a slide deck. Okay, there's an idea. Now you take that compared to cannabis, which we know people want. We know the market measured in the billions and probably hundreds of billions. We know people have been buying cannabis since the price was going to jail. You know it's a market. You have a solution, and yet you live in a world where raising the money to do something that's basically right in front of you is, is can be next to impossible, right? So we were really lucky in that we had a track record and a team and people who believed in us so that we could do things that are, are frankly, very hard, right? Like when you buy a farm of cannabis, you don't get to get a mortgage. You're not putting 20% down and getting a 5% loan or whatever, right? We bought a $10 million farm for $10 million, right? In cash. And then we had to take what turned out to be about 34 months to get that farm license before we could even put a cannabis plant in it, right? Like that's not the way the world works. The opportunity side is if it wasn't like that, then a group like us, you know, would we'll probably get their butt kicked by a Monsanto or a Cargill or a ConAgra, or, you know, somebody who just operates in that world. But the fact is that this is a different world different skill set and you know my personal skill set of having experience doing things people have no experience doing is a perfect fit for this because we can go out there and figure out how to get something done in a very strange environment and be the first ones to do the things that we're doing
0: well and, and bob as you mentioned there's something special about getting to do something in your hometown getting to build a business in your own backyard and and i want to talk a little bit about what you are building in california because it's very special and very interesting to Chart the the growth of uh, glasshouse farms over the last couple of years and i I saw a quote from you somewhere where you talked about building a, a craft brand at scale and you and you referenced Lagunitas and I thought that was a great analogy and of course Bob is we've been talking recently about amazon's interest in the space, looking at what that market for cannabis products will look like in the near future, and that there will be space for both the uh, craft market and the uh, quote-unquote Budweiser's of cannabis. But, Graham, you mentioned that interstate commerce is one of the topics that's been on your mind lately, and I'm interested, particularly because of your location there on the West Coast and, you know, your neighbors to the north and east— What do you see as some of the major issues behind the the topic of interstate commerce?
1: So, I mean, I I think interstate commerce is, is really interesting. My personal opinion is that it's an inevitability. Certainly, you know, you can have other views. I like to think about it as kind of go back to first principles, which is either cannabis is like every other product in our country's history, and then it moves around state to state, or it is the single exception. And it is gonna be the equivalent of when you go to Wyoming, you pick your favorite Wyoming wine. And when you go to New York, you pick your favorite New York wine. My opinion is that champagne comes from France, tequila comes from Mexico, cannabis comes from California. When you go places, you don't drink Ohio wine, you drink Napa wine, you drink French wine. You probably don't have a favorite non-Mexican tequila brand, right? To me, it seems like it has to go that direction. I think Congress will do it, maybe slower than some people were thinking. But if Congress doesn't do it, I think the courts do it. I think that the dormant commerce clause of the Constitution guarantees, I mean, this is a quote, basically, that for American farmers, their market is the entire country. And if that doesn't apply to cannabis, I don't know what they meant. You can see early precedents being set in this when states have tried to have residency laws for cannabis permits right? I mean, a residency law, if you're not from Massachusetts, you can't get a Massachusetts cannabis license. That is, in effect, disadvantaging non-Massachusetts residents versus Massachusetts residents. That's what the Dormant Comics Clause doesn't allow you to do. When those residency laws get challenged, they get, they've been dropped every time. I mean, you can even see, I think it was in Michigan, that it was stayed by a federal judge, right? So now you have the federal government saying, we're not going to allow you to implement this because it violates the Dormant Commerce Clause because it preferentially treats your local residents versus residents of other states. So I think if Congress doesn't do it, as soon as somebody challenges it, it's going to happen. And I also think that consumers eventually get what they want, and you can see what they want, which is California cannabis across the country. I mean, to the point that I had somebody visiting here in Santa Barbara who's from a legal cannabis state, yet they were stocking up to smuggle California cannabis from a dispensary here back home. Right? Like they were smuggling California cannabis into a legal state, right? That tells you how bad people went. If you go to New York, you look through the bodegas, you look at the secret menu, you Florida'd be closer. You know, you guys in Colorado have been doing it longer than us, yet it's not filled with those brands. It's filled with California brands because that's what consumers want. And I think the, the constitution supports them.
2: Well, no, you're spot on. In fact, I've done a lot of work in Mexico on, on their legislation from a policy perspective. And uh, there are underground dispensaries in Mexico City that I've been invited to tour. And I've been to probably a, a dozen of them. And nearly every single one is replete with California cannabis products. Now, you and I both know there's uh, legal challenges to that. No companies that I would mention in this forum, but I would tell you that the desire for cannabis products from the state of California remains uh, at an all-time high, and for good reason, because of the legacy, so forth and so on. But you know, when you go to law school, you, you, you learn about constitutional law. And and there are esoteric constitutional scholars that that I go out to lunch with periodically. And to your point about the dormant commerce clause, these scholars, these folks that know constitutional law inside and out are adamant that a decision from the Supreme Court, particularly from conservative jurists, as we've got right now, would have to Go in favor of the states, which would open up that marketplace dramatically. Although, unfortunately, our court system does move quite slowly. So, in the absence of judicial relief, Uh, Do you think the Biden administration, which almost weekly sends us mixed signals about its, uh, (laughs) its impression of the cannabis industry, do you think the Biden administration does that? And, and not to, to, to create a compound question, that's even more complex, but how does Amazon and Uber and Scott's miracle grow and constellation brands, in other words, large companies, how do they play into the influence there?
1: Yeah. I don't think that Biden is a huge fan of, cannabis i think he's got personal reasons that make him resistant to it i i think if something ended up on his desk he would for political reasons almost be forced to sign it because he couldn't go on record not signing it particularly because it most likely would come um from a social justice point of view which you know for for the record i think is, is frankly more urgent and more important than the business point of view if there was an option to put my you know, business interests and in interstate and you know federal legalization aside, to move the social justice side of legalization faster, I would raise my hand and, and take that. I mean, I think uh, that the war on drugs was never really a war on drugs. I think it was a war on people. I think it's, been, it's specifically it was a war on specific people. At that um, I think it's been an utter failure and. Uh, from a public health point of view, but a tremendous success if your goal was to put certain people in jail in massive numbers and create a commercial prison complex that tore apart certain communities. And I think that that needs to end and can't end soon enough. So I think he would have to sign it for, for those very good reasons. But I think politically, he will discourage it from landing on his desk. Clearly, we know what Chuck Schumer wants to do and he needs to get a, certain number of votes for that to happen. And I'm not sure that there's the political capital for for that, at least right now. But I do think that the less likely that is, perhaps the more likely an expanded safe banking is. And I think that there's a lot of value to that and that the odds of that happening probably get get higher by the day. Um, And that would do a bunch of great things for the industry, you know, 280E and a bunch of tax stuff. So, it's an inevitability. It's a fool's errand to try and judge a political timing. Um, if you ask me to be a fool, I would say that my guess is it's probably uh, two to three years out, which is great timing, I think, for us and where we sit in Glasshouse. And I think that we'll continue to see the progress and the safe banking, or especially expanded safe banking, listing on U.S. exchanges, 280 ADE tax removal, full banking, not just bank accounts, but true banking for cannabis would be you know, massively beneficial for the industry. And many of those companies uh, that you mentioned would have uh, a a much clearer path to do what they clearly want to do, which is play in the space if that happens.
2: That's very well said. You know, I've served in a top executive position in several MSOs over the last several years and the luck of being a interim CEO of a botanical extractor uh, that was a multinational company and expanding their operations globally. I understand the challenges in this space, even in legal jurisdictions. As you embark on on sort of building out Glasshouse and looking at ambitious plans, I'm sure, what are some of the objectives and, and correspondingly the challenges that you expect over the coming
1: years? Gee, that's a that's a good question, crystal ball to that. I, I think cannabis is interesting because it's the definition, I mean, it's the definition of a frontier market from the point of view that many of the things that are so taken for granted that you don't even notice them in other industries are significant friction, hurdles, accomplishments, you know, whatever the right word is. We're just talking safe banking, right? Like in no other industry would getting a bank account be on your business plan, right? Like you wouldn't, you know what's one of my goals for this you know year right get a bank account like just, that'd be a, a tuesday morning right and here in cannabis we are thankful to have banking for all of our operations we had a celebratory dinner when we got bank accounts right and and we had then we had a second dinner when we got a regular bank account where we didn't have to pay money to deposit our cash right like those things, you can talk about insurance, you can talk about who's willing to do your paychecks, you can talk about credit lines, you can talk about, you know, employees you can hire and their concern over immigration status to work in the industry, right? Like, those multitude of small, but significant and compounding frictions, and, and, and of course, the stigma out there, right? And the fact that every time we want to build a you know new new building for processing some anti-cannabis prohibition person, spends the 500 bucks to appeal it and talk about how we're trying to turn Santa Barbara into a narco state. You know, it's like that kind of stuff is, it's just, you know, those are the things that there's these external, it's like riding your bike with the brakes stuck halfway on sometimes. So, you know, again, I do, I think it's a challenge and the opportunity, right? Like if it was easy, someone would have already done it. Uh, I wouldn't go into competition with somebody and growing corn or tomatoes because like there's people who are very, very good at that. We have the opportunity because of all those frictions and because, you know, other people's concerns over being in this market to be the one who gets to be that good. And so, you know, I try not to complain about it because if it wasn't for those things, we probably wouldn't have a chance to be here.
0: Well, and that's kind of the point, right? When we celebrate your entrepreneurial spirit, which is a common thread that we see in a lot of the folks that we speak with on this podcast, that there, uh, there are a lot of challenges in this industry, but the potential and the possibilities that the future hold are what drive all of us and, and what we're so passionate about. And before we let you go, Graham, I just want to give you the opportunity to highlight anything for our listeners, any other engagements or uh, products coming out or anything you just want to highlight uh, before we sign off.
1: Yes, yeah, For those, you know, outside of uh, California who might not know it, um, uh, glasshousegroup.com is our website, glasshousefarms.org uh, is our product page. Um, you know, if you, obviously if you're in California, uh, we've got four dispensaries now in the process of opening 17 more. Uh, those are under the pharmacy brand, so certainly come check us out. Glasshouse Farms is our premier, kind of our primary brand on the flower side. Um, we have an awesome brand that we developed with Bella Thorne, uh, which is really cool and you know, kind of female-focused and, and very much a, a Bella approach, which I think is unique. And uh, the, the, you know, the, the target and who it's made for is that kind of 21-plus female called Forbidden Flowers. We have a, a brand, that's a connoisseur extract brand called Field, uh, all fresh frozen, uh, live resin, live resins. I'm Graham Farrar on Twitter if you want to hear things that I have to say. So, you know, I think that, you know, reach out and connect with us and we're excited to get to know a, a whole new group of people as part of uh, this uh, process of uh, going public with the Mercer Park Brand Back that's uh, happening here in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, we'd uh, love to get to know some new people and come visit us as, uh, as soon as
0: you can. Oh, we can't wait to keep following your journey. And thank you so much, Graham, for taking the time to be with us here on The Hoban Minute today. Take care, sir. Awesome. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on The Hoban Minute.